Hello everybody, this is the fourth sermon looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're looking at Matthew 5, 27 to 37, and we're looking at adultery, divorce and oaths. The Office of National Statistics tells us that 42%, nearly half of all marriages now end in divorce. What this means is that we are all now likely to know people who have been through marriage breakdown. We will have witnessed firsthand the division, distress and damage this causes, not just for the couple, but for all their wider relations. And I'm sure you do not need me to tell you that there are many studies that show that children are affected most of all. Statistically, children of divorced couples are more likely to suffer emotional, psychological, educational, behavioural and relational difficulties throughout their lives. I've seen this in stark detail. When Emily and I got married, we could only have one half of her family present due to the acrimony of her parents' divorce years before. I saw the sadness this caused her and the pain has only come out further since her father died. The issue of marriage breakdown in our culture is doing huge damage. The effects are felt in our schools and our prisons and our hospitals and our churches. It all goes to beg the question, is this really what humanity was supposed to be like? Is there no better way to live than this? In recent years in the UK, a debate has been taking place about divorce. It began with the high-profile case of Teeny and Hugh Owens. Teeny wanted to divorce her husband, but the courts refused to permit it due to insufficient grounds. That ruling was heavily criticised in the media. One baroness slammed our country's divorce laws as archaic and a whole host of lawyers began calling for the introduction of no-fault divorces. These are now due to begin in England and Wales in the autumn of this year. This emotionally charged debate was not at all dissimilar to the one going on in Jesus' day, as the religious teachers argued over what constituted legitimate grounds for divorce back then. But notice how Jesus responds. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not want his hearers to get embroiled in endless debates over what is allowed and what isn't. Instead, Jesus wants his listeners to remember what their purpose is on earth. He wants the members of his kingdom to think about how they can best be salt and light. How they can best live as salt, stopping society and relationships going bad around them, preserving what is good. How can they best live as light, shining out into the darkness, showing people a different way and drawing them in to meet with God? Jesus emphatically believes that marriage is the best way for humans to live as salt and light. He champions marriage and resolutely sets himself against divorce. His listeners are to start with this ideal and work out the practicalities from there. Today we shall do the same. We recognise that there are people here who have suffered hugely through divorce, often against their wishes. 
this church must always be a place of healing and support for them. But we shall stop to reflect on why Jesus thinks marriage is so important and what practical steps we can take to support it. As we shall see, a major part of this involves dealing with the twin issues of lust and lies. Surely it is no coincidence that Jesus' teaching on divorce is sandwiched between these two. Nothing breaks marriages down quicker than uncontained sexual desire and a lack of truthful integrity. The church is a place for all people, and not all of us here this evening are married. But we all have to deal with lust and lies. There is then something for every one of us to think about and act upon. And may our light begin to shine as we do. We shall begin with Jesus' teaching on adultery. The seventh commandment given to Israel was this. Do not commit adultery. In short, do not consent to having sexual intercourse with the spouse of another person. Just don't do it. In fact, the Old Testament was even more blunt than that. The penalty for adultery was death by stoning for both parties. Now, why, you may say, why was it so harsh? Well, because the Old Testament and indeed the rest of the Bible teaches us that a marriage is designed to reflect out into the world the relationship that God has with his people. Think about this. Marriage speaks of covenantal love, love that goes on through thick and thin, richer and poorer, better and worse, sickness and in health. Love that holds through the toughest of situations, seeing suffering and struggling people through them. Marriage speaks of forgiveness. Forgiveness for daily faults and failings. Forgiveness for bigger sins that take time to deal with. Marriage speaks of dependence, where two people are not self-sufficient, but by relying on one another they can flourish and achieve far more than they could on their own. Marriage is about constancy, faithfulness, devotion, and perhaps above all, sacrifice. Can you see, all of these things are a reflection, showing us something of how God loves us. For God loves us with covenantal love, love that holds through thick and thin. God forgives us daily and for our great mistakes. We depend upon God, and by doing so, we can achieve things beyond our previous imagining. God is constant and faithful and devoted to us. God made the biggest sacrifice of all in sending Jesus to die so we could have any ongoing relationship with him at all. The Bible is utterly clear, both Old Testament and New Testament, that marriage is an institution designed by God to reflect his love out into the world. When non-believers see a married Christian couple, they see something of God's love for them. Of course, God also knows that marriage is the healthiest way to live, the safest place for children to be nurtured, a building block of a strong community and society. But above all else, all else, marriage is missional. It is 
evangelistic. Just by working at a marriage, a couple are preaching the gospel for the world to see. Marriage itself is a light shining like a, a beacon to the unbelieving world to draw them into the God who created it. So hopefully we can now see why the Bible is so utterly against adultery. Because if marriage is a walking, talking sermon about God, that behaviour preaches to the world a lie. Adultery tells the world that God's love is not faithful, but can swiftly be turned away to another. That God is out for his own interests and not the people he has committed himself to. That God can give up on us in a difficult situation or refuse to forgive us. That God is not dependable or trustworthy. That actually we'd be better off just looking after ourselves rather than depending on him. Adultery does not just cause massive pain and anguish tearing apart families. It also preaches into the world a lie about God. It turns off the light of marriage and leaves the world in darkness. So adultery in the Old Testament was deadly serious. But surprise, surprise, the Pharisees had managed to cheapen it. They thought that a married person could do anything up to sexual intercourse and still be keeping the command. Again, they were following the letter of the law, but completely ignoring its spirit. So Jesus here raises the bar. He says the seventh commandment had far greater implications. I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully has already committed adultery. In other words, it's not enough just to maintain physical purity. Even if you cheat in thought, you are breaking the bond of exclusive devotion that a man should have with his wife. When we look lustfully at another, we give away something of ourselves that should be reserved for our spouse. Lust begins in the heart, the, the very core of our identity. Now this does not mean that we will never find someone beauty or beautiful or feel the impulse of sexual attraction. We are all biologically designed to do this. What it means is that we will all need to work to prevent that initial look from becoming a prolonged gaze or a dwelling of lustful imagination. This is what Jesus is getting at with the strong language of gouging out eyes and cutting off hands in verse 29 and 30. He's not advocating self-mutilation, even if it's for no other reason than the fact that even a blind person with no hands can still lust in their mind. Rather, Jesus is teaching that, as his kingdom people, we need to be rigorously self-disciplined, going to any lengths to protect marriage and the witness to the world it forms. And if we are complacent in this regard, sin will fester. Again, the word for hell appears in verse 30, and it is the word Gehenna, the name of the burning Jerusalem rubbish dump. Lust is like a fire that will burn you up from the inside if you do not get it under control. Jesus then is not trying to create a kingdom full of prudes who don't enjoy sex. Sex is one of his great gifts to us. 
Instead, he's trying to create disciples who live life to the full in relationships as God designed them, promoting wholeness to all concerned. What could be the equivalent of gouging out an eye or cutting off a hand today? Could it be putting a block on your internet to prevent pornography? Could it be moving your desk at work to stop flirtatious conversation? If we find ourselves dressing differently to attract attention, we should stop it. If we're texting a message we'd not be prepared to show our spouse, we should delete it. If we want to be a light to the world, we must protect marriage at all costs. It is an evangelistic picture to the world of God's faithful love for us. Saying no to a temptation outside of marriage is the most basic of commands for Christian discipleship. After adultery, Jesus next moves on to divorce. And he begins again by taking his hearers back to the Old Testament law. In the ancient world, divorce was incredibly widespread, and it was always at the whim of the male. They could get rid of a woman whenever they liked. So God instructed Moses to institute certificates of divorce. These certificates were designed to protect the sanctity of marriage and to protect vulnerable women from being sent away. But surprise, surprise, the law teachers of Jesus' time were undermining this as well. In the first century, as I said earlier, there was a great debate over what were legitimate grounds for a divorce. There was a particularly liberal group of lawyers who declared divorce was legitimate even if a wife burnt their husband's dinner. That is not an exaggeration. The exact wording was if she spoiled a dish for him. There was another group of hardline rabbis who said that if adultery happened, divorce was essential. Jesus walks into this great debate and again raises the bar. In his eyes, divorce creates adultery. In other words, we cannot see someone else, divorce our spouse so that we don't technically commit adultery, and then immediately marry the person we saw. That is still adultery. We cannot divorce for insignificant or selfish reasons In fact, even if adultery has happened, we should try to forgive first rather than seeing divorce as a necessity. Jesus does, though, allow for one exception. Sexual immorality. The Greek word porneia describes more than just adultery. It describes any sort of sexual infidelity that divides a marriage, including abuse. Jesus can unequivocally state the sacredness of marriage, but still allow divorce where it stops someone getting exploited. Marriage is designed to show God's faithful love to his people. So if it has reached the stage where a marriage is imprisoning a person into abuse and unhappiness, that marriage has become a vulgar sham. It has already ceased to be the picture of God's love that it's supposed to be, and the vulnerable person should therefore be protected. As Christians, then, we need to be unreservedly committed to marriage. Spouses should forgive wherever possible and invest everything to make their marriages work. We must only break marriages in the most extreme conditions. 
In this way, we live as salt, challenging the world's sexual mores, and we live as light, evangelistically demonstrating the faithfulness of God's love. The final way Jesus wanted his people to stand out in this passage was in terms of the integrity of what they said. In ancient times, a person was permitted to swear by the name of God to substantiate an important promise. It helped them remain faithful, as the law demanded that they were true to such an oath. The legacy of this is seen in today's courts, where witnesses swear on the Bible to tell the truth. But yet again, by Jesus' day, this teaching had been twisted. Certain teachers of the law now believed that only oaths invoking the name of the Lord would be binding. That is a very subtle difference, but it had drastic effects. It meant that if a person wasn't really serious about something, they would swear by something less sacred than God, knowing full well they could then get away with breaking it. In this passage, Jesus refers to when they swore by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or by their own heads. I guess a similar thing today would be when people say, I swear on my mum's life. In short, the people were trying to find loopholes, which in turn dissolved the practice of good oaths. So again, Jesus gets straight to the point. The law was supposed to be about integrity. So he tells his disciples they're not to swear at all. Light oaths, such as swearing by heaven, were never made to conceal deception. By contrast, disciples should not need to use oaths at all, because everyone knows them to be fully trustworthy. Their yes is a yes, their no is a no. They mean everything they say. Jesus says that swearing deceitfully is lying and lying is evil. We therefore must not do it. If we want to be a light to the world, the world must see us as having total integrity. We must win their trust so that when we do get a chance to tell them about God, they will believe us. So how do we pull all these three separate sections together? There is no question that divorce in our society is a massive issue. And sadly, the rates of divorce inside the church are not too dissimilar to those outside. And if we want to be a light to the world, if we want to stand out, that simply cannot be. We have got to tackle this. In this passage, divorce comes between two sins both of which in some ways are more basic, but both of which speak into the present crisis. If we knew how to control lust and were committed to integrity and telling the truth more often, there would be far fewer divorces. Divorce usually happens when lust and lies have grown up like weeds that choke the beautiful plant of marriage. Dealing ruthlessly with lust and determining to resolutely tell the truth both to yourself and your spouse will see off most of the challenges to even a hard-pressed modern marriage. But of course there is more that we can do than just these two things. Can I encourage us all to make a really practical response to this passage? If we are married, invest again in your relationship. Tell your spouse that you love them. Write them a card. Buy them some flowers. Go out for dinner. Get the old photos out. Give them a kiss. Enjoy sex. These small things are so important and can bring pleasure to us right to the end of our lives. 
And whether we're married or not, let us make the commitment to pray for Christian marriages. Pray for the marriages of ministers and friends and children. If it's possible to do more than just pray, do it. Offer to babysit so a stressed couple can go out for dinner. Give them a voucher so they can afford a restaurant. Where appropriate, offer advice that you've gained from hard experience. We're all in this together and as a church we want to be known as a place where marriages are supported and prioritised. Throughout this sermon, Jesus is unveiling a new way of being human. As we find ourselves invited into the kingdom, we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to start living like the king. This is missional. If we can protect marriage and all become known as people who speak the truth, we will shine out like a light in the darkness and the world will want to know why we are all so different.